Hi, everybody. I have some exciting news. I am launching a Substack. I know. I keep telling you how I'm not a writer, and I'm still not a writer, but I am going to be writing about reading over on Substack. The Substack is called Unstacked, and you can find it at tracythomas.substack.com. There will be free options every Friday. There'll be a bunch of weekly roundups, announcements, all the shit I'm into. And then if you want to upgrade yourself to the paid subscription, I'm going to have author interviews, bonus episodes, anticipated reads, book pairings, community chats, all sorts of stuff. So, If that sounds like something you'd be into, go to tracythomas.substack.com and join Unstacked. And of course, I've got a special offer for you. If you go to tracythomas.substack.com slash the stacks 10, you get 10% off your first year membership of Unstacked. You have from now until April 4th to redeem. Again, that's tracythomas.substack.com slash the stacks 10 for 10% off Unstacked. Okay, that's enough. Let's listen to this episode. It's time for another episode of The Short Stacks, our shorter conversations with authors about their books and their process. I'm your host, Tracy Thomas. Today, our guest is Lacey M. Johnson, author of one of my favorite books of 2018, The Reckonings. Before we dive in, I'm going to remind you about a few little things. First, if you're listening to the Stacks and enjoying the show, you have the amazing Stacks pack to thank. Those are people who listen and love the podcast and have decided to contribute as little as a dollar a month to make the show a reality. In addition to knowing that they're supporting the Stacks, they also get perks for themselves, like shout outs on the show and taking part in our virtual book club and more. So if this sounds like something you might be interested in, go to patreon.com slash the Stacks and help make the Stacks a reality. If you prefer one-time contributions, check out paypal.me slash the Stacks pod. Another way to help the Stacks is to write a review for the podcast on Apple Podcasts. You just rate the show and leave a small message about why you like what we're doing. If you're not already, take a moment to follow the Stacks on our social media. You can find links to all of our social media accounts in the show notes. Also in the show notes are links to everything we talk about on the show. So if you click through those links to do any shopping on Amazon, the Stacks earns a small commission. It's a total win-win. Okay, now it's time for our conversation with Lacey M. Johnson. Lacey is a professor, activist, curator, and the author of three books. Today we're discussing her newest book, a collection of essays called The Reckonings. All right, Lacey Johnson is here with me today. Thank you so much for joining us on The Stacks. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. Oh, good. Well, that feeling is definitely mutual. Um, Lacey is the author of The Reckonings, which is her most recent book. She's also written two other books, but we're going to focus mostly today on The Reckonings and on Lacey's process. So in about 30 seconds or less, can you kind of tell us about the book? So this is a book um, that's about justice, because while I was on tour for The Other Side, which is my previous book, my memoir, which is about um, the time that I got kidnapped and raped by my ex, um, people kept asking me, what do you want to have happened to the person who did this to you? You probably want him dead, right? And I didn't want him dead, but it just really confused me why people would want that for for me and for him. And so I began asking myself, well, if that isn't justice, um, as I think it's not, uh, what is? Right. And then you kind of 
just wrote a bunch of essays about justice. Yeah, I did write a bunch of essays about justice. Um, and they're all amazing. Everybody knows that I'm obsessed with this book. So I'm going to try to like not talk about how great it is, but it is great. And if you haven't read it yet, I'm going to tell you that you should read it. Not that I believe in required reading, but it's kind of required reading. Why did you feel compelled to turn this into a book of essays? Like what drove you to actually write it as opposed to just kind mm -hmm. of meditating on your own about it? I mean, I think uh, writing essays or writing in general is just the way that I figure out the world. You know, I I think like a lot of people, the world, I experience the world as strange and confusing. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, writing is the way that I come to understandings about things that confuse or horrify or terrify me. Um, and so, you know, that's why I wrote the essays and, um, you know, why I wrote them as essays rather than as a memoir, say, is just because it's about so many things. And I, I couldn't figure out how to do it as like a single narrative um, because the 12 essays are about such, you know, seemingly radically different things. It made the most sense to just split them up that way. Um, but also the way that I approach essay writing is, you know, I come to it with a question and, and the question that I was asking was specific to each of the situations that I was writing about. And you cover a lot of topics in your essays. You talk about um, sexual violence and rape. You talk about whiteness. You talk about the death penalty, mm -hmm. kids with cancer, write, writing in a political climate that feels like garbage, you know, Hurricane Harvey, you're talking about all these very different things. And I feel like even just listing them now, they feel so different. Right. What, which things were the hardest for you to write about and which things kind of came easily? I don't think any of them came easily. <laughs> this is a really, <laughs> a really, really hard book to write in a lot of different ways. Um, from like a craft perspective, I'll start there because it's the easier thing to talk about, right? You know, I think for me, the way that my process works is it takes me most of the time that I'm working on an essay, I spend trying to figure out what kind of structure it has. Like, how do I bring these different things together? Because even though the book is about, you know, each essay is about these different things, within each essay, <laughs> there's a lot going on also. You know, the essay called On Mercy, for instance, is about, you know, kids who are dying of cancer as well as about the death penalty. Right. Um, and so figuring out how to bring these things that I sort of know are related, but I don't know how they're related um, together into a conversation, that takes me most of the time that I spend working on the essay. And, and it takes the same amount of time whether I'm working on an essay or whether I'm working on a memoir. Mm -hmm. So to do it 12 times um, <laughs> took forever. And it was really hard and exhausting to write to figure this sort of structural problem out 12 different times. Um, so it was hard in that way. But then it was also difficult because, you know, in my previous books, which are both memoirs, I'm writing about my own experience. And especially in the second memoir, in the other side, you know, I'm writing about really difficult material and it was, and it was hard to write about. But one of the things that did not make it hard was you know, carrying the pain of that experience because I had already become so accustomed to carrying it. Mm. You know, it, it happened 13 years before I finished the book. Um, and so with this book, uh, with The Reckonings, I am sort of writing 
from my own perspective as a person who has survived this kind of horrifying trauma, but looking at, um, looking outward and, um, sort of thinking about the pain of other people and engaging with them. And one of the things that was hard about it that I wasn't prepared for is, is carrying the weight of the pain of, of those, of the other, of other people. people. Yeah. And that was just, you know, I think in my imagination, I thought, well, I can just, you know, kind of dip into this story and pop back out after I'm done writing the essay and I won't, you know, and that'll be fine. But uh, it was not fine. And I found that I couldn't do that. And once I started writing about someone, I was writing with them and 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 in allegiance with them and um, sort of took their pain as my own. And so that that was challenging as well. Right. And how long did it take you to write this book? Um, I think I wrote, I worked on this book about four years. Um, I'm trying to remember when I began. I guess I began it in 2014, in the fall of 2014, when I was on tour for the other side. Mm. And then I finished it um, December of 18. So a little over four years. Wow. And is The Reckonings, that first title article, um, is that, or essay, is that where you started the book? Like, was that always the first mm-hmm. one? No. I, I knew that that essay would be the first in the book, but mm-hmm. it was not the first one that I wrote. Um, the first one that I wrote that I knew was part of this book was um, the the On Mercy essay. Okay. Um, because I had been um, giving a reading at Texas Tech University. <laughs> and I got this question, what do you want to have happen to the man who did this to you? You probably want him dead, right? And I gave the answer, um, which was, you know, no, I don't want him dead. I want him to s- admit what he did to me in public and then to spend his life in service of other people, you know, to other people's joy. And I think it might have been the first time that I gave that answer or I had been working toward that answer. But um, the person who had invited me there, this wonderful writer named Leslie Jill Patterson, um, she works in criminal justice and works on the death penalty. And mm. she just sort of saw in that um, a kind of you know resonance with what the work that she did. And she gave me a copy um, of this book called Autobiography of an Execution by David. the writer David Dow. Yeah. Yeah. And and I read that book and I was like, oh, there's something here. I feel like he's working on the same thing that I'm working on, but or, or thinking about, but he's coming at it from a really different way. And then right after that, I read um, Just Mercy, Brian Stevenson, which is a fantastic book. And so then, and I had just finished, you know, maybe the year before teaching in a pediatric cancer ward um, where, you know, some of my students, you know, died during the time that I was teaching them. And the kind of discourse and language around, you know, easing the suffering of children who are dying of cancer, it just, there was a lot of overlap um, mm-hmm. with the, you know, language and discourse around capital punishment. And, but people had really different intentions right. in the in what they meant by, you know, the term mercy, for example. Um, but there was this, you know, in, in the Venn diagram, there's this huge area where there, it was the same language and the same in a way of talking, um, but people meant really different things. And so then I said, okay, well, I live in Texas where that year when I was teaching in the pediatric cancer ward, you know, 13 men were executed 
Um, so it just seemed like I, I wanted to write about that. So I wrote about that. Um, and when the essay was done, I said, okay, there, I don't feel like I've scratched the itch of right. this broader question. And so I think I better write a book. So that was when I, I started writing the book. But a couple of the essays that are in the collection were written or versions of them were written before. And so one of those was um, the what's now called Girlhood in a Semi-Barbarous Age mm. um, had been a, a quite a different essay um, that had appeared before um, on Mercy. And maybe there's another one, but um, I can't remember if like Speak Truth to Power came before or after on Mercy. Okay. And how did you know you were done? Like, how did, I, I guess, I mean, even more than how did you know you were done? How did you know what topics were going to go in? Because you mm. wrote about so many disparate things, seemingly, yeah. that you really could have written about anything. The way that you write, it's kind of like you brought justice to the issues. Right. So how did you kind of know, like, yes, we're going to talk about nuclear waste, but no, we're not going to talk about, I don't know, Colin Kaepernick or whatever, you know, whatever right. it is. Right. Well, I mean, in the so once I started, you know, I'd written maybe two or three essays, you know, I wrote a proposal <laughs> and for, for the book and just right. kind of laid out um, the essays that I thought that were to me that I had something of value to contribute to the conversation. And I think that's an important thing that I don't necessarily think that my voice is the most important one right. in every conversation that is, you know, has to do with issues of, of justice, um, or issues of injustice, maybe that is. Um, and so these were just the ones that I felt like I did have something, um, that my, my voice might, might be valuable. There was, um, you know, in the original plan, some essays that didn't end up getting written. Um, one of them was an essay that was called white hot rage, which was about, um, sort of, uh, I guess, you know, toxic masculinity and particularly conservative anger. And this, you know, I imagined that I was going to write about, you know, the people at the, the Trump rallies who are mm. just really mad about what seems to be everything going their way. Right. <laughs> you know, like things <laughs> seem to be very good for them and they're really, really mad about it. And, but, you know, really they're mad that other people are getting to have privileges and opportunities that they have. Um, but, you know, I'm, I'm from Missouri and um, a lot of my family voted for Trump. And so I felt like I might have something to say about that. And when I wrote the proposal, I did not imagine that Trump was going to win the election. Mm. And so after he did, and then there were a million think pieces, right, about, you know, the anger of, right, right. you know, mar you know, so-called, you know, so-called what economically disadvantaged or whatever, you know, the, the, and, and I have many thoughts about that, but, um, <laughs> but, you know, there were, there were a million think pieces about it. And then it just didn't seem like there was anything more to say right. about that because so many people had said so much already. And really it became clear that, that the, that they those people didn't necessarily deserve to our focus and our attention anymore anymore at all ever so um so i decided just not to work on that one and i and i pulled it out and um 
I think one and and replaced it with what uh, became the Art in the Age of Apocalypse's essay, mm. which is about artist activism. And so, like how I knew I was done was I just wrote all the essays that I meant to write, and then, um, and then it, my deadline came and went, <laughs> and you know, my editor was saying, "Hey, you're done. Where's that, where's that book?" Right. <laughs> Taking care of your health isn't always easy, but it should be at least simple. That's why for the last. Three plus years, I have been drinking AG1 every day, no exceptions. It's just one scoop mixed in water once a day, every day, and it makes me feel nourished and strong enough to tackle whatever else might come my way. That's because each serving of AG1 delivers my daily dose of vitamins, minerals, pre and probiotics, and a lot more. It's a powerful, healthy habit that's also powerfully simple. The nutritional insurance that AG1 provides has been vital to keeping me productive and focused. It helps me cover my bases in just about the time it takes to fill a glass of water, scoop in one scoop of AG1, and then drink it. So I don't know, 75 seconds? With the perfect mix of vitamins, probiotics, and nutrients from Whole Foods, I'm not stuck trying to assemble it all by myself, which would have considerably worse results. AG1 saves me all the time and hassle, and it has made such a difference in my overall mood and especially my gut health, among many other things. But don't take my word for it. Go ahead and try AG1. Let me know what you think. Whether you notice you're needing more nutrient support than you're used to, or you just need an edge for a tough workout, AG1 can be the ticket. If there's one product I had to recommend to elevate your health, it's AG1, and that's why I've partnered with them for so long. If you want to take ownership of your health, start with AG1. Try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3, K2, and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase exclusively at drinkag1.com slash the stacks. That's drinkag1.com slash the stacks. Check it out. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. This episode is brought to you in part by Noom. Forget one-size-fits-all diets. With Noom, you get a personalized weight loss plan that's tailored to your lifestyle. No food is off-limits. Enjoy your favorites while discovering healthier habits. Noom's users love the flexible approach, blending psychology and biology to help you lose weight in a way that's sustainable for you. And great news for foodies. Noom just released the Noom Kitchen Cookbook, with 100 delicious, healthy recipes. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M.com. Grab your copy of The Noom Kitchen wherever books are sold. Did the book ever have any other titles? Or was um, it always Maybe, but not that I would admit publicly. Like okay. I, I think before it had this title, it didn't really have a title. Okay. And it was probably just had like a placeholder title, um, you know, and I, I remember when we were about to send it to publishers on proposal, it still did it, like it still didn't have a title. And mm. then, um, you know, I, I think my agent was about to hit send and I was like, oh, wait, 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 actually, I thought of one. <laughs> and 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 that was the reckonings. And it was just um, so it's kind of always been the title that it's had. 
Got it. And what about um, the cover? Can you talk about it at all? I, I had some ideas yeah. of what I thought maybe it was. I know a lot oh. of the essays had birds in it. Yeah. Um, but then specifically, my thinking was that it was from, now I can't think of the name of the story with the, the sister. No, I'm literally the sister, the Greek story, the sisters. Mm-hmm. Is that to help me? <laughs> oh, yeah. So that one is um, Speak Truth to Power and it's got um, Philomela. Yes, Philomela. And, there it is. and her sister. So, yes, it's that. But as you say, there are a lot of birds in the book. Um, I think what I was thinking was I was really interested in the motion studies of, um, you know, this this photographer who I mentioned only in like it, it had been a bigger part of the essay called The Precarious was this um, sort of thinking about the history of photography because photography is is um, the technology through which we're able to see all these images of violence or asked to look at all these images of violence constantly now, every single day. And so the history of photography at one time had been a bigger part of that essay. But in the final version, most of that is in the notes. But I was really interested in that, in those images. Um, And if you look them up, they're really, I don't know, they're just fascinating. In particular, the, the Images made by um, Jules Murray. I can't remember his first name. Etienne Jules Murray, baby. Um, and my French is atrocious, so that's not how it's like. Whatever that sounded like is not how it looks, and okay. it's not right. <laughs> um, you know, it's like very early in the history of photography. But and he shot them. He made a gun, like it was a photographic gun that he made um, to shoot birds in flight. And that I just thought was fascinating. And then looking at the images that he created from that were fascinating. And there was something about that idea of, you know, a bird, one bird at like many different stages in flight Mm -hmm. that I loved as a metaphor for these essays. So that it's the same question, but at different stages Um, and just, you know, in different state of motion across the entire book. So you kind of always had that in mind for the cover, like because sometimes mm. I know authors come to a cover and they're like, I, they write their book and they're like, I don't know, and they hand it off to the publisher and they're like, here's six options. And then right. I've also heard that sometimes authors come to the book and they're like, no, it's very much this thing or it has this feeling or right. Well, I think it was a combination of those things. So I think I wanted to see what they would come up with first, mm-hmm. and they sent me some covers and they were not quite what I had in mind. Right. And one of the things that I didn't like about the covers that they first came to me with, it was just so like literal, like there was a, an image on one, there was an image of a woman's like of lady justice, Mm -hmm. like the statue with the blindfold. Mm. Like there was an image of that, the, the head of that statue and, and a bird was on it. And I was like, this is very, literal, you know? Um, and I want something that is, you know, evocative of my idea of justice. It's not so like the way everybody thinks of justice, right? Right. Um, they think of the lady with the, you know, blindfold and the scales. And so, um, so then I, I gave them this feedback and I said, um, you know, I, I sent them a bunch of these motion studies and, um, it's like, can you, can you do anything with the birds? And, um, so this was one of the covers that they sent back in that second round. And when I saw it, it just took my breath away and I knew. Yeah. It's to- it is totally breath. It's a breathtaking, just like whew, chills kind of cover. Yeah. When you're writing this, when you were writing this book, where were you 
physically writing the book? Like, do you have an office? Did you go to coffee <laughs> shops? Like, how did you get it done? I know you teach. Yes. So you I also teach. have a day job aside from being mm-hmm. a writer. So kind of how did you negotiate that? Right. So I write a lot in my bed. Okay. I like to work in my bed because it's like the largest surface in my house. Mm. And I, you know, I sit in my bed and I spread my books and papers and everything all over, all over the bed. And um, so I work there. I work in coffee shops. Sometimes I work in my office. Um, I work on the road. I work in the plane. You know, um, I think probably my primary place is in my house. But I do feel like if I'm there, I kind of get into a certain... I can get myself into certain patterns. And then I find myself like using the same phrases all the time or mm. or just you know, I have to kind of make myself, get myself out of that very comfortable situation into places that are more foreign or, you know, where there are more people around or different music or, you know, change the context so that I'm able to have a fresh, you know, it gives me a fresh set of eyes. Right. Do you have writing snacks or beverages or rituals (laughs) around your writing? Yes. I like to eat crunchy snacks, okay. uh, crunchy and salty. And it doesn't really matter what it is as okay. long as it's crunchy and salty, like tortilla chips. Um, I, I don't eat uh, flour, so it has to be like a gluten-free cracker or okay. pretzels, or like nuts, <laughs> pistachios are really good, though they're a kind of a two-handed snack. Yeah. So it's not very, I mean, it's, if I go to the pistachios, I know that I'm like about to not do, not do any writing. <laughs> I just sit there and eat, eat a snack. Yeah. You know, I drink whatever's around water, coffee. I, I tend to like make a cup of coffee and then let it get really cold and just sort of sip it all day, which okay. I, my dentist tells me is very bad for my teeth. But Worse um, than hot coffee? Yeah. Just to sip, you know. Oh, oh to put, have it all day. I see. Yeah, to sip it all day is, is bad. You know, I drink wine. <laughs> Whatever. It depends on the time of day and where I am, I think. Um, but always the the crunchy snacks are a part of are part I love of that. I love a snack. I love when other people have snacks in their life. <laughs> snacks oh, are important yeah. to me. What kind of stuff were you reading or listening to or watching mm-hmm. while you were doing this work? Um, I mean, I was reading mostly research. It's hard for me to read for pleasure while I'm working on a book because everything – I. I end up relating everything to what mm, I'm doing okay. unless I'm reading really far outside of my genre that I'm working in. And so I'll read um, like crime fiction, like thriller crime fiction. Mm. Like I really got into reading like Gillian Flynn um, while I was working on this, which is kind of the total opposite of what I'm doing. Right, right. Um, or like Girl on the Train, these sort of like really fast moving, um, you know, I love them and they're so plot driven. I would not say they're particularly thoughtful, right. right? Which I don't mean as a criticism, but that's just not the thing that they're doing. Right. Um, and so it was just very different from what I was doing and it was kind of fun and I could just do it to unwind or, or whatever. Um, but mostly I was just um, reading for research and, you know, I would, you know, find myself stuck and would pull down like some of my favorite you know, go to essayists like Rebecca Solnit. I really like her work. Um, and in particular, I turned to her work because I, I think she's so good at the, at turns mm-hmm. um, where she'll, you know, be going in one direction on a particular subject. And then she turns 
in a way. And the way that she does cohesion between those turns is something that I've spent a lot of time studying because I think it's so smart. And just trying to figure out like how she does that, that she's Mm. talking now about a very different things, but it seems totally related. Right. You know, each essay has its own kind of body of research. And so I would have to... Um, you know, amass my stacks and stacks of books and articles and essays and government reports and and everything. And and unfortunately, I was mostly reading that. And I'm not able to listen to music that has words when I'm working. So that's a huge deficit. But, you know, there's like channels on like Spotify, right. that's like, you know, the the chill study music or something. Yeah. You know, that was your jam. Like Just like yeah, quiet, no words. Yeah. I I feel like that's r- most common with writers that they can't have yeah. other words. And that makes sense. For me, like I can read with music, but only if the music is music that I know well. Like I have to really? know the song inside and out, know all the words, because otherwise I get distracted with what's happening with the music. So right. I like something that's chill that I know like every single word to. Um, otherwise I just go totally silent. I feel like I'm the opposite way. Like if I know the words, then all of a sudden I'm like, (laughs) like singing along. That's Um, interesting. For your research. Well, I guess, do you like research? Like, is that something that's enjoyable? Oh yeah. It's my favorite part of it really. If I could just do that all the time. I mean, it seems like because you took such a wide breadth of topics, like if you hated research, you'd be like, I'm writing essays on this one tiny thing. So it makes sense that you would enjoy that now thinking about it. Were there any things that you read in your research that you're just like, people should be reading this, like this should be in the hands of other humans? You know, I wasn't reading um, most of the research that I was doing was was primarily informational you know it's not so it's not like oh this is like a uh, you know like this particular report about the radioactivity in the landfill is like (sighs) require reading for all humans it's dense and it's terrible and you know it takes me forever to like digest it you know and and that's one example but you know I'm looking up like newspaper articles and um you know trying to there there wasn't a ton of research that was allowed me to just read for pleasure and Mm -hmm. and think about that. And even, you know, engaging with the work of other writers that I admire, I had returned to them looking for specific, you know, ideas or specific pieces of information. So, I mean, unfortunately, I love research, but it does take some of the joy out of reading. Totally. But 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 the joy is in the learning, I think, instead of in the the pleasure of the reading itself. Right, right. Like being like, I learned this amazing thing today. Oh, yeah. yeah. Um, did you, how did you know you wanted to be a writer? Because you are not just a writer, you teach writing, you have a PhD in non creative nonfiction. No, actually, my PhD is in poetry. Oh, I'm it is. I will, mm-hmm. Oops. This is on a podcast. But you're, you're a writer and a clearly a lover of writing and writers. Like, I guess what I'm trying to say is you're not just writing because you feel compelled to write, but there's a passion that you have around writing because otherwise, you know, why get a PhD if you right. don't love the work? So how did you know you wanted to write and or when did you know or, you know, and then how did you decide, like, I'm going to stick with this and get a PhD because that's pretty major? Yeah. So so I grew up in Missouri in a really small farming town in north central Missouri Um you know, and my, I went to the same school from like, um, second grade. Cause that's when we moved there. Second grade through high school, like the same okay. building. Right. Whoa. In retrospect, 
not the best education. Okay. You know, I got some bad information while I was there. <laughs> um, uh, but, um, you know, and I got in trouble in most of my classes. Um, I was in detention a lot just because I was like, I, you know, there's a, a kind of conservative worldview uh, and, you know, ideas about the place of women. And the, I, even at that point, it wasn't jiving right. with me <laughs> and like <laughs> how I saw myself in the world. But I had this teacher, um, her name was Denise Harvey. She's my English teacher. And she was the only person who thought like her students were capable of more than they, any of us thought that we were capable. Everybody mm. else thought that we were capable of much less than we were actually capable of. And she's the only person who thought that we were capable of way more. And so, you know, she would have us, you know, read Shakespeare and, you know, write scholarly papers about it. I mean, in retrospect, they're probably garbage, but, you know, doing <laughs> analysis and literary analysis and then write creatively and, you know, write poems and stories and, and everything. And, and, and it was fantastic. Um, and I loved it. And also she told me that I was good at it. Mm. And then that made me love it more because suddenly I was good at something in, besides getting in trouble. Right. <laughs> right? I had been good at that and now I'm good at this other thing. And so when I went to college, like I knew, you know, I, I, I had to negotiate th something that a lot of people have to negotiate, which is like, you know, my parents wanted me to do certain things and I was called to do other things. So I changed majors a bunch of times, but eventually I was like, okay, I want to be a journalist. And I, um, was, you know, applied to the journalism program and, and I got in, but, you know, I was sort of a pre-journalism person. Um, and they said, you have to take these prerequisites to get in. And one of them was a creative writing class. Um, and so I took this poetry workshop, you know, enter, you know, beginning level poetry for undergrads. And the person who taught that class was getting a PhD in creative writing mm. at that school. And, and that just blew my mind because I had no idea that that was a possibility, like okay. a thing that you could do, like you can do this for a job like this can be something that you do. And I, and I know that sounds ridiculous at this point, but like I said, I grew up on a farm, you know, right. on my mom's side, I'm the first person to go to college. Um, you know, my dad has a college degree, but you know, he's an engineer. So it just, it just wasn't within the realm of possibility. Right. And so then I was like, okay, well, this is something that I wanted to do. And then, you know, the next class I took, that person had a PhD in literature and I was like, oh my God, that's amazing. Like, <laughs> and so then I was just like, that was the thing that I wanted to do. And, um, and I wanted to, you know, study books and write about books and talk about books and talk about ideas. And just, that was, that was what I wanted my life to be. And, um, so that was always the plan was to, you know, I'm going to go to grad school. I'm going to be a professor. Um, and writing sort of almost came secondary to that. Interesting. Um, so I, you know, saw that I had the option, um, in pursuing an English major to get a sort of concentration in creative writing. And I did that. Um, and then I, you know, I graduated with my degree I was applying to grad school. Um, and that was when I got, you know, I left my ex or I left my boyfriend and I got kidnapped and raped. Um, so then that just sort of like turned, turned my life and my thinking. Um, and it's a strange thing to admit, but I, 
I am a writer because I've always been trying to find a way to tell that story. Right. Um, you know, then I went on to grad school and and have studied writing and now I'm a professor. So, yeah. so you got there. You did it. I got there. Yeah, Check. I did it. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I just have a few more questions for you. One of which is how did you celebrate on publication day? Uh, what did I do? Um, I got up really early in the morning and came to my office and did a radio media tour or remote media tour. <laughs> like I talked to a lot of AM radio stations okay. and um, about my book. I think I taught I taught my class and I gave a reading here in Houston and then there was like a party um later that later that evening. And so I just, you know, my friends and my community and people here in Houston just sort of got together, but you know, I had to go out the next day and fly somewhere and, you know, and then I was on tour. So I don't know that I've properly celebrated publication day yet. <laughs> well, yet. you should. You should definitely. Yeah, should. Do you know what comes next for you? Is there a, another book that you have you're thinking about or is it too soon? I am thinking about another book and I'm sort of on the fence about what it is. I, I mean, I have maybe three, three books that I'm going, that I'm going to work on. And one I'll probably just chip away at for years. And that's just like a craft book, you know, mm-hmm. a sort of essays about writing. Um, one is a book about, I think about the death penalty mm. specifically because um, I found that I, that I'm asked to speak about that and to talk about that a lot. And that that is a really, there are some, you know, really entrenched attitudes about justice and punishment and race and poverty around the death penalty um, that I, I feel like I, I feel called to, to attend to, um, but I don't have any idea yet what that would look like or exactly what that would be. One of the things that I've noticed is there's not a lot written about women who are executed, mm-hmm. um, oddly. And when you, and I've done just a little bit of research now, I mean, research is my favorite, um, (laughs) about like women who have been given the death penalty and it's, and it's, um, it's interesting, uh, you know, who, who gets the death penalty and, and for what. Mm -hmm. And, uh, the other project is, another, um, book about, um, let me say it's about, you know, the connection between environmental justice and racial justice more mm. explicitly. I won't say that it's exactly about climate change, but of course, anytime that you write about the environment right. now, it's about climate change, but it's about how the way that we define nature or how our definition of nature contains within it permission to commit violence against the planet and one mm. another. And um, so that one's probably the one that I'll do first. I'm so excited. I can't wait. (laughs) Um, So I guess my last question or two questions, my second last question is for people who loved your book, what would you suggest them to read? Is there anything that you feel like is kind of in the same line or just feels like a good connection? It doesn't have to be the same topics, but just something that you're like, this feels similar. Hmm. Oh, that's a hard, that's such a hard question. I don't, I, and this is going to sound so arrogant, but I don't think there are any books quite like my book. There aren't, um, not that I've read, not no, yet. <laughs> no, I haven't either. Um, but I think, 
you know, there's a lot of books out that I think my book is in conversation with. Yeah. Um, you know, and I've mentioned some of them, you know, I think like Brian Stevenson's work is mm-hmm. so important. And if you love justice and freedom, like you should totally read Brian Stevenson's work. You should also go to the Legacy Museum and the National Memorial for Peace and Justice. That, And if he does not win the Nobel Peace Prize <laughs> soon, like the committee is not paying attention. No, he's a total um, hero. He's such a he hero. He is a hero. He's Ugh. amazing. Um, you know, David Dow's work, the autobiography of an execution. There's been so many amazing books, even just this year. Like, um, I'm a huge fan of Kiese Lehman's book, Heavy. Mm-hmm. Um, I know you are too. Yes, huge. Um, I'm a huge fan of this book um, by Sarah Ahmed called Living a Feminist Life, mm. um, which I think is a book that's that combines sort of theory with cultural criticism in a way that's really smart and digestible. Uh, now I'm looking around like, what have I got <laughs> laying around? Eloquent Rage is a really good book. White so Fragility good. is a really good book. You know, I think there's, I think we are in a, I won't say a renaissance because it's not like we're coming back, like coming right. back to a brilliance that was here before. Like this is the dawn of a, a kind of intellectual revolution. And and I, I love the work that's being made today. I love that. I love that. Those are all really good books. I'm so excited that you mentioned them. So my last question for you is just if you could have like, someone who's reading this book, what's something that you would hope that they would take away from The Reckonings? Healing, maybe. Sort of um, just some solace, I guess. Um, I don't know that there's like a single message um, that I have or, or, or a lesson to be learned as much as just a kind of um, way of looking at the world that is less cruel and more hopeful and generous um, and, and a way of thinking about justice that, you know, sort of creates opportunities for, for healing and discovery rather than punishment and, and pain. So I, I like the, the, the former rather than the latter. Yes, I'm with you. Well, Lacey Johnson, you're amazing. Thank you so much for coming on the Stacks. Um, and yeah, thank you. Thank you. You're amazing. I really, I'm so glad to be here. Thank you. Yay. And thank you guys for listening and we will see you in the sacks. Thank you for listening to The Short Stacks, and thank you to Lacey M. Johnson for joining the show today. A huge thank you also to Cameron Deason-Hammond and Scribner for getting the reckonings into my hands. To help support The Stacks and earn awesome perks, go to patreon.com slash the stacks or make one-time contributions at paypal.me slash the stacks pod. To help support The Stacks and earn awesome perks, go to patreon.com slash the stacks or you can make one-time contributions at paypal.me slash the stacks pod. Make sure you're subscribed to The Stacks wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're listening to us through Apple Podcasts, take a moment now to rate and review the show. Our graphic designer is Robin McCright. Our theme music is from Tagirajis. And this show was created and produced by me, Tracy Thomas. And I will see you in The Stacks. One, two, three, four. Those are numbers. But you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. AutoTrader.